0: Second Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 through 13 is our text this evening. be focusing there on those three verses. This is Paul's fourth of five faithful sayings delivered as a sort of last will and testament to his dearly loved sons in the faith, Timothy and Titus. Second Timothy 2:11. It seems like companies don't utilize jingles as much as they used to. They really should because those messages are burned into your brain, right? I know they're burned into mine, even ones that sort of like predate my time. Uh, even if I don't use the product, sometimes the little song will just promote a product. Gillette. Okay. I don't use a Gillette, but that's fine. Sometimes the, the song or the jingle will give a call to action. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Next part, the call to action. Again, that's not the tree. There you go. Sometimes the jingle just gives helpful information about how to use a product. Let's see if let's see who knows this one. We sing this one a lot at my house for some reason. You must never put bananas. No one knows the Chiquita banana song? <laughs> The Chiquita Banana song. I'm Chiquita Banana. I'm here to say, it's a really long song. You can find it on YouTube, like everything else. You must never put bananas in the refrigerator. It's because they like to live at the equator. Look it up on YouTube. In fact, look it up now. There's a banana singing, and she's telling you all these things about bananas. I didn't know if anybody would know that one. Now, I still remember the Roy G. Bibb song that my high school science teacher taught us to remember the orders of color and visible light. Even for a colorblind person like myself, I was able to remember it. He just made it up. I'm not going to sing it for you. Uh, If you have little ones in the house, you probably make use of some of the great songs taught by shows like Daniel Tiger that help your kids out. If you have to go potty, stop and go right away. Flush and wash and be on your way. That's like an anthem at our song. We're always singing the Daniel Tiger songs. What does any of this have to do with our text? Nothing. No, that's not true. Uh, It actually does have something to do with tonight's passage. Take a look at your Bible if you have one open. You'll likely notice that tonight's faithful saying is formatted differently on the page. You have a bunch of paragraphs, paragraphs, and all of a sudden these verses stand out, formatted differently. Uh, It's positioned like poetry is in the Bible, as if Paul breaks into a little psalm here, and that's effectively what he does. This was an ancient hymn, or at least a portion of an ancient hymn sung by the church. It was possibly used as part of baptism services, or it may have been one of the spiritual songs that Paul refers to in both Ephesians and Colossians. Remember he says, uh, you know, speak in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, and people recognize those as different categories, and they think that, this maybe was one of those spiritual songs. In fact, some Bible commentators believe this song was written by Paul himself. Either way, uh, it seems that these lyrics would have been familiar to Timothy when he came across them in the letter. It's a theme song meant to embed certain ideas and understanding into Timothy's mind. And here, at the end of his life, Paul wanted to sing it one final time to his son in the faith to remind him, to encourage him, and to strengthen Timothy's weak heart. Now. As we're going to see, this is a wonderful song full of outstanding promises, but sometimes the extraordinary guarantees of the song are overshadowed by the warning that's in the song. The text there, if you look at it, is made up of four if-then promises. Three of them are guarantees, great guarantees. One of them is a very severe warning. It's a warning that should terrify those who have not been born again. But should it terrify those of us who are Christians? Well, what we'll find is that there is a point of application for us in the warning, yes, but we need not be afraid or insecure before the Lord. In fact, the whole purpose of Paul's letter to Timothy here was to stabilize him in the faith, to strengthen him, to build him up so that he could live out his faith boldly and experience the power and the peace that God wanted to provide. You read through 2 Timothy, a very tender letter, a great letter, but it's clear that Timothy was in some... Tough days, days of spiritual weakness, days of even maybe being ashamed of, of the testimony of Jesus Christ or at least lending himself toward those sorts of attitudes and behaviors. And so Paul writes to him to build him up and to bolster him up and to encourage him not to fill him with fear. In fact, he tells Timothy, hey, we have not been given a spirit of fear. Uh, and he wants Timothy to be filled with peace. Think about it this way. Uh, Me and the guys have traveled to Colombia a number of times, and usually before we do so, we check out the U.S. governmental websites uh, for travel advisories and warnings about where we're going. And when you look on those websites, like the State Department site or the U.S. Embassy site, there are warnings there, drawing your attention to some of the hazards of Colombia. One of them is the danger of yellow fever. Uh, It's a serious illness, and once you contract it, there is no medicine or treatment to cure the infection. But if you're vaccinated, then it's no longer an issue. They can throw up that warning all they want, but I've had my yellow fever shot. And so there there may be other travel advisories or other travel warnings or other things I need to pay attention to on that site, but I don't need to wring my hands about yellow fever. Am I going to get yellow fever? Am I going to be afflicted with this terrible infection? Well, no, I've had my... Vaccination, and so I'm secure. I've had the shot. I say this not to make light of the warning that we're going to see, but to help us not to be overwhelmed by the strong language that Paul uses. And he does use strong language, and he says something that's downright scary if you just take it on face value. We have to remember that Paul's goal is to encourage us and excite us, his goal is not to cause us to call our own eternal security into question. And that is what happens to folks sometimes when they get to this passage. And that concern can drown out the other incredible promises that we receive in this text. So let me read the verses for us. And we'll come back up and look at these little couplets one by one. Verse 11. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So you see it there. We have four times an if-then formula. If this happens, then that happens. The first one is, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. No, died is in the past and shall live is in the future. If you're a Christian here this evening, the Bible explains that Jesus did not just pay your debt, But that as far as heaven is concerned, you died with him there on the cross. Uh, Paul talks about this a variety of times in his letters. He says in Romans 6, for example, that when we were, what he says, baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. Now he's not talking about the outward ritual of baptism. Because it's clear in the New Testament that water baptism has no part in the salvation process, which is by grace alone through faith alone, but the baptism of the Spirit that we read about in 1 Corinthians 12 and Galatians 3. When we become born again, it says that you're baptized by the Spirit. If you are a Christian, the Bible says this about you in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives In me. Because you died with Christ, it is promised and guaranteed that you will live with Him. Paul explains earlier that it's not just unending life, but that it is. Everlasting life in eternal glory. Sometimes in movies like sci-fi movies or fantasy movies, there's like a character or two or a class of characters who are immortal, right? And in those movies, the immortal people are always bummed out, right? They're tired of living. They're tired of being alive. A lot of them just wish they could be mortal again. It's kind of a theme in those sorts of movies. And the reason is because they still live in the same broken world, full of pain, full of sufferings, full of disappointment, They see all their loved ones year after year, generation after generation, you know, getting old and dying, right? It's a theme we come across in movies. But that's not the kind of immortality that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about eternal glory, where sadness is gone and replaced with joy, where all weakness is gone and replaced with power, where there is no more pain, no more failure, where we have perfect understanding, where we have perfect peace, where we are no longer sinning or even tempted to sin where all that's wrong about me has been put away and I live forever in the presence of our Savior. In fact, I think Paul might say to us that, man, we're going to be alive really for the first time once we get to heaven. This life feels awfully alive sometimes, But Paul would say to us as a person who, you know, he had that vision of heaven. He said, I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body, but this was so mind-blowing. I can't even put it into words. We're going to be alive for the first time in the sense that God wishes us to be alive. In perfect, glorified, uh, uninterrupted, unveiled connection with him where we're seeing him face-to-face in the eternal state. I mean, that's going to be really living. And Paul guarantees us here That if we have died with Jesus, if we've been crucified with Christ, we will live with him forever in his presence. We're going to be made perfectly glorified as God intended uh, the lives of human beings to be. What a wonderful promise. So what's the ticket to this promise? Well, it's very simple. We must die with Christ, meaning we must trust him as Savior, believe on him, be covered by his sacrifice on the cross That and that alone grants us an entrance into heaven after our physical death. But not only does it give us an entrance, but the Bible explains we get much more than a ticket in. We get a full share in Christ's inheritance. We like Disneyland, most of you know. Hey, it's great to be allowed into Disneyland, but imagine if you swiped your card or your ticket and, you, and as you stepped through, they said, hey, not only uh, are you granted entrance to enjoy this place, you actually now are a full share owner of Disneyland. You have your run of the place and you're going to be part of this. This is, you know, we're going to give you, you know, the dividends of all of Walt Disney's work. I mean, that would be a mind-blowing thing. And Galatians three twenty nine says, "If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise, heirs of Christ's inheritance." And part of that promise that Paul refers to there and here is referenced in the next couplet of our song. He says, "If we endure, we shall also reign with Him." These days, in what we might call hipster Christianity, it's popular to operate under the idea that we just I hear. I hear this out there in the wider Christian world. We just bring heaven to earth right now, whatever that means. No one can explain to me what that means. But it's just sort of like we just kind of just vibe on like heaven right now. And uh, that's that's sort of popular uh, attitude right now. It's popular to deny the coming literal kingdom of Jesus Christ on this earth. Rather, the suggestion is we just sort of mystically experience the kingdom in the midst of this broken world. Now, while we are already citizens of the kingdom, and while we do God's work in the here and now, this is not the kingdom. Jesus Christ is not ruling and reigning from his throne in Jerusalem like the Bible very specifically says he's going to for a thousand years. Quite frankly, this world's a dump. And if this is the best kingdom our king can establish, we've got some real problems. Then then I'm a little bit worried about the job he's going to do on my mansion in heaven. If this is is the kingdom now, man, I I don't know. I think we need to have a committee meeting or something. I mean, this world is in serious need of a remodel. And luckily, that's exactly what the Bible says is going to happen. Jesus Christ is going to return bodily after the seven-year Great Tribulation. He's going to establish a real, literal global kingdom on the earth and this coming kingdom is part of our inheritance according to the Bible we're told that we will rule and reign with the Lord alongside him in that thousand year kingdom now here in 2nd Timothy we're specifically reminded of this promise Paul says if we endure we shall also reign so let's talk about those two terms for a minute what does it mean to reign and what does it mean to endure well first reign this is not some phony, ceremonial, powerless, fake position. It's not like when people get knighted by the Queen of England today, right? They, they still do that. They're knighting people left and right, you know, sir this and sir that. It doesn't mean anything. You don't get anything other than that title. In fact, I was looking up today. I was like, What do you get if you are knighted by the queen? And there were people on there, and they said, Yeah, all I got is every now and then I get a, a table at a restaurant. I say, I'm Sir Whoever. Oh, right this way, Sir, you know. And that's it. It's It's just a Fake thing. It's a photo op. It's a, hey, you did something for something, and so we're going to knight you in this little phony ceremony. But they're not part of the kingdom. They don't get to have an audience with the queen or the king whenever they want. They don't get to impact policy. They don't get to go and say, okay, well, now that I'm a knight of the round table, I'm going to come and give you my ideas and throw my hat into the ring. They're just like, no, we already had your ceremony, and now you're leaving. This was all just a phony thing, right? Well, that's not the kind of, of co-ruling and reigning that Jesus promises to us, his people. This is a real, significant, meaningful place in his kingdom. What an amazing thing that Jesus Christ, the king of all heaven and earth, the king of all the universe, would say, yeah, I'm going to share my rule and reign with you human beings. It's mind-blowing. And The Bible says angels are looking into this thing and say, what's going on here? These guys? These guys are going to be involved in all of that? It's real, it's significant, it's meaningful. It's like being appointed to the cabinet of the president or or being appointed to the Supreme Court but without having to go through the confirmation hearings. The Lord's just going to say, hey, I've appointed you to do this work in the kingdom and you're going to have a real, actual part in it. We may rule over multiple cities according to one of the parables of Jesus. We will judge over angels. Paul says that outright. He says, you guys are going to judge angels. I don't even know what that means. What what angels, are angels having disputes up in heaven? I'm not sure what that's about, but he says, hey, you're going to judge angels. You're going to judge in the kingdom if you're a Christian. You're going to be part of the supreme court of heaven. You're going to be part of the Lord's cabinet. This is a wonderful promise, a good reminder, especially when we feel insignificant in this life. Hanford's not a very important town. I think it's a great town. You could do a lot worse than Hanford. I'm not sure you can do that much better than Hanford. It's a great little town. But it's insignificant as far as the you know Wikipedia entries of the world go. And we may feel insignificant in our own personal lives, or we may feel insignificant in our service to the Lord in this life, but the Lord looks at that and says, hey, you've been faithful, you've endured, I'm going to make you a valuable, meaningful, real, significant part of my kingdom on the earth. It doesn't matter if you're not from New York City, if you're just from Hanford, that's fine, you're a part of it. The Lord has given us a really great promise here. But what does it mean to endure? Well, the immediate context. Uh, is important. It meant here in the immediate to Timothy to faithfully endure persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ. Paul was in chains for his Christianity. Timothy was concerned about that, a little bit freaked out about that. Persecution was constantly sweeping through the ancient uh, world there in the first century. And so Paul is talking to him. He says, hey, don't be ashamed of my chains, Don't be ashamed of coming persecution. Don't be defeated by that. And so when he told Timothy to endure, the primary immediate context was, Hey, Timothy, you're going to face oppression as well. And Paul was writing to strengthen Timothy and bolster his resolve to hold on in the midst of that persecution. And he reminds Timothy that martyrdom is not defeat. Being oppressed, being persecuted is not defeat in the Christian life. Being martyred, killed for your faith is not defeat. In fact, those who go through martyrdom find themselves in a special class of victory as far as the Bible is concerned. A special crown awaits them. But is persecution and martyrdom all that Paul means here by the term endure? Do we all need to pack up and move out of the freedom of America, the blessings of America, and get a ticket to Iran where people are being persecuted or North Korea say, well, Paul says I have to endure persecution, so I better go where there's persecution and get martyred. Is that what we're being told to do? Well, the answer is no, because not only does God not command us to seek out this sort of suffering, the command to endure has a wider application than just professing Christ when someone's pointing a gun at your head. It has a much wider application than that. We are to endure persecution if it comes. We are to even endure martyrdom if it comes. But there's a wider application than that for believers all around the world who aren't experiencing that kind of violent oppression right now. A couple of ways that scholars define this term endure are this way. To stay alive... And to stand your ground. And I think those are just sort of great ways for us to take this command and this idea to heart. First, stay alive. What does it mean? He says, hey, if we endure, we are going to reign with Jesus. If we stay alive, we're going to reign with Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means to stay vigorous and awake and stirred up in our Christian faith. Paul would tell Timothy elsewhere in this book, stir up your spiritual gifts. The Apostle Peter writes to stir up our pure hearts, uh, our, our pure minds, excuse me. The writer to the Hebrews instructs us to stir up love and good deeds. A variety of the parables teach us to stay spiritually alert and awake that we might be ready for the Lord's coming, ready to be used, ready for opportunities. We endure by staying spiritually alive and awake in those senses. But we also endure by standing our ground. That's another way to take this phrase. Stand your ground where God has placed you. Where has God positioned you? You know, in the Bible, it's clear. Now, God specifically positions people in certain times and in certain places for his good purpose. Think of the demoniac of the Gadarenes. He, you know, the Lord exercises all those demons out of him. He wants to follow after Jesus. I'm going to come with you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be one of your disciples. And Jesus says, no, no, you're not. You're going to go back to your town and here's what you're going to do. He had a specific position for him. Uh, We think of Philip the evangelist. I mean, very overtly sent specifically here, then here, then here. and Sometimes without even being told, he's just raptured away to another town. And the Lord's like, here's where you're going to go. Here's where you're going to go. Here's where you're going to go. I need you to get on the road right now and get in between, you know, in this crossing where the, the Ethiopian eunuch's going to be. I mean, very specific timing, very specific placement. Uh, we think of the apostles and how God led them. You were created at a certain point in time and then scattered to a certain place on this earth to be a specific part of the will of God. You know, uh, when the Lord was you know creating you, knitting you together in his mother's womb, he wasn't up there with one of those bingo things like this and just saying, okay, well, who's coming out next? Okay, this guy over here. Okay, who's coming out next? Just, just whatever. The Lord knitted you together in your mother's room at a specific time and in a specific place for specific purposes. Uh, he positions us on purpose. and. We are called to discover the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us and to walk in them. That's what Paul says. One of the images Paul gave Timothy earlier in this very chapter is that of a soldier under orders. He says, hey, Timothy, you're like an enlisted soldier under orders and what you think you might want to do doesn't matter anymore because now you're under orders and you're under a command and you're going to be sent to a specific spot whether you think that's the good spot or the best spot or the most comfortable spot or not we need soldiers and sailors and marines and the military to obey orders and not be like, "You know, Sarge, what if I just like went over there? I know you want us to go over here, but I'm just going to go over there." That would be ludicrous. A military can't function that way. But it's interesting, in our spiritual lives, you know, the Lord gives us a free will. And we sort of have the ability to say to God, well, you, you've sent me over there, what if I go over here? Jonah's a good example of that. I want me to go to Nineveh? What about Tarshish? When you said Nineveh, I heard Tarshish the other way. <laughs> and so... Part of enduring means to stand our ground, to stay where God has positioned us and, pl- and place us as we discover the good works that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. If you are a Christian, your life is not your own. It belongs to your king. And he's the one who has the authority to decide the course of your life. We may think we have a great idea about where we should go and what we should do and how we should do it. Okay, bring that to the Lord. But he's the one with the perfect plan. And we are to stand our ground wherever he has led us. And by doing that, we faithfully endure. To the third couplet, the one that often speaks the loudest when we read it. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Just as our understanding of endurance had sort of two parallel applications, this warning does as well. First, this is a severe, deliberate warning to the unbeliever. If you refuse to accept Jesus Christ, you will not be received by him, period. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father and read that as the Father in heaven. No one is granted eternal life in heaven but by Jesus Christ. Instead, if you refuse Jesus after you die, you will be sent to conscious eternal torment in the lake of fire hell is real and there is no escape except through jesus christ all who deny him meaning all who refuse his offer of salvation will be there forever now it's not what you want and it's not what god wants that's why he's putting all these warnings in the bible that's why he sends christians out with the gospel he doesn't want people to go there either he doesn't want you to perish He put warnings like this all over the scripture and sends us out to carry that truth to a lost and dying world so that unbelievers can realize the reality of the fact that the wages of sin is death but that there is eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. It's a free gift. But if you refuse the gift, then he will deny you. He will deny you access to heaven and you will have only one other place to go and that's the lake of fire. Now, if you're born again... This aspect of heaven and hell, well, this does not apply to you. If you're born again, you belong to Jesus Christ. You are covered by the blood of the cross. You were crucified with him. Verse 13 itself should be enough to assure us of our security in salvation. But there is a parallel application that we can take to heart, and that is... When we give in to temporary denials or refusals in our walk with the Lord, then we will suffer loss with regard to our relationship with Him. This is what Paul wanted to drive home to Timothy. Because at this point in his life, Timothy was frightened, he was drawing back, he was sort of ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ, he was moving towards spiritual failure and denial, and so Paul wrote to him to get him back on track. And I'm so glad he did, because all of us go through times when we make mistakes, or withdraw from the Lord, or give in to denial in some area or another when we choose not to obey the Lord's commands or when we hold back from sharing the gospel when we're being prompted to share or when we give up on prayer or when we cultivate bitterness in our hearts rather than love, these are all ways in which we sort of refuse the Lord in a, in a small setting. We're not refusing Him as Savior, but we're refusing to obey. We're refusing to trust Him. We're refusing to go His way. And when we do that, though we're not in danger of hell's fire, we will be denied certain things the Lord wants to give us. One pastor put these losses, these three losses on his list. First, the forfeiture of future reward. 2 Timothy 2 verse 5 we see that the loss of heavenly joy and peace Timothy was experiencing these things because he had withdrawn uh, from that intimacy from the Lord and he was full of doubt and had no peace in his mind and no joy in his heart Also, uh, the loss of effectiveness in our prayer lives. The Bible uh, addresses this in a variety of different ways. When we refuse the Lord by failing to obey Him or trust Him or go His way, then there will be a denial of things that God wants us to have. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy and to us. And then finally in verse 13, Paul closes the song with this beautiful promise. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now, some Bible commentators believe this is actually an extension of the warning. That Paul's doubling down and saying, That's right, if you're faithless, God will be faithful to judge you and send you to hell, whether you were a Christian before or not. And um, I just, it's just so out of context with how Paul has been speaking to Timothy. Timothy. You know, at the beginning of this book, Paul says, makes it a point to say, you know, Timothy, I know you have a genuine faith. Despite his imperfections and despite his stumblings, he says, hey, I know you're called. I know you're gifted. I know the Lord is with you. I know your faith is genuine. When we read the book, there's no indication that Paul thought Timothy was going to lose his salvation. No, it's much more consistent to see this closing verse as a final hopeful encouragement. And that's great because all of us have moments of faithlessness in our walk with the Lord. But in verse 8, Paul said this was his gospel. He says, this is my gospel, my good news. What he's giving us here is not some bleak decree and some like weird legal code like, hey, if you don't live a perfect Christian life, God's going to send you to hell. What? No one can live under that. Well, this is good news that Jesus Christ is always reliable, always loving, always acting with allegiance toward his people. And even when we fail, our Lord never fails. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, whether you do your part perfectly or not. And that's good because spoiler alert, you're not going to do your part perfectly. And I don't do my part perfectly because we're imperfect We've been saved, but we still sin. We're not going to be perfect by a long shot. And the great encouragement here is like, hey, you're a Christian. You're walking with the Lord. You will slip into imperfection. God knows that. The Bible knows that. When you're faithless, Jesus Christ remains faithful. Okay, can I sin that grace may abound? Of course not. The Bible talks a lot about this. Go to the other books of the books of the New Testament that explain, like, okay, well, if your faith has no works, it's dead. And do we sin that grace by bound? Hey, if you were a Christian, you wouldn't even think something like that. But here is a great promise and encouragement: when we fail, when we have a moment of faithlessness, Jesus Christ remains faithful. He doesn't wash his hands of us and say, "Well, that didn't work. Let's move on to the next guy." I hope the next guy's perfect. This, you know, Gene certainly wasn't perfect, so let's find somebody who is. Well then no one is going to be in heaven when we get there. In fact, we won't get there. Only Jesus will be there and be like, "I really thought I really thought I died for some people. Where is everybody?" And so, this is a great and wonderful encouragement. The Lord cannot and will not deny himself, and if you are saved, you are in Christ Jesus. The Bible says, "He is and always will be faithful." And so the closing questions are simple. Are you in Christ? If you are, are you living out these promises? Are you hanging your lives on this faithful saying? These are very plain but very powerful promises given to us. If you want rest, reward, assistance, spiritual security, direction, hope, okay, well, here's how you get them. Recognize who you are in Christ. Endure by His power as He directs you where He wants Whether that means enduring persecution or just standing your ground, staying spiritually alive wherever you are. Paul summarizes it all up in chapter 2, verse 1. He said this to Timothy very simply. He says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Very simple. Maybe for you today, that means just remaining at your post like a good soldier. Maybe it means being obedient to publicly proclaim the gospel, even when it seems difficult. Maybe it means to endure real persecution. You know the specifics of your life. I don't know them, but these principles are given to all of us, Paul and Timothy, you and me. It's not always easy, but it's always possible and it's always good news because God has done these things for us and will do them through us if we obey him and we are headed home to eternal glory to rule with our king that's the journey you're on paul's gospel is our gospel so burn this song into your mind and your heart let it build you up in hope and strength and security in your lord